0: Our scripture reading will be Romans 10, verse 16 through verse 21, the end of the chapter. As you're turning there, if you're visiting with us, we've been going through Paul's letter to the Romans for some time now. We did take a few weeks off at the first of the year just to kind of realign ourselves with some of the things going on in our nation and to consider what God would say about that. And at the same time, I've given a lot of thought, and and while we do acknowledge the things going on around us in the world, at the same time as the Church of Jesus Christ, uh, what He has called us to do never changes. That is to make disciples and to make uh, men and women and children those who would worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so as we continue through Paul's letter this morning, I'm um, just giving you a rationale as, as to why we continue to do so. Let's begin reading at verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And so the reading of God's word, let us pray. Lord, we do pray that you would open our ears, give us eyes to see the things in your wonderful word, and we pray that we would receive it by faith and put it into practice for your glory. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Maybe seated. <clears throat> Some of the teachings in the Bible uh, can be like one of those double image illusions. Uh, one of the most popular of those uh, illusions or images is the one where there is a black chalice in, in the center. And after you stare at it for a while, you, you might see two faces looking towards one another. Or maybe you see that And a little later, you can see, if you look hard enough, you'll see the chalice. Well, in God's Word, there are teachings that are like that. They are both there at the same time. uh, But some people only see one of those images or teachings in the Word of God. And as an example, I give to you the sovereignty of God in salvation, as well as man's responsibility. So the sovereignty of God, on the one hand, and man's responsibility on the other. Sometimes uh, some only see the human side, man's responsibility. And yet the Bible does teach both, and I'll just read it to you. In Acts chapter 2, at the end of his sermon, the apostle Peter preaching to the Jews who crucified the Lord Jesus, he said this about Jesus, him Being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. And so, on the one hand, he talks about how the death of Jesus Christ was according to God's predetermined plan and his foreknowledge, his decree. And at the same time, Peter looks at those men and he says, You have crucified by your wicked hands. And you put the Son of God to death. And so there you are, there they are, both before us in Scripture. So this morning I remind us of that. Because Paul, in this letter to the Romans, in chapters 9 through 11, he's talking about Israel's failure, some men call it that, Israel's rejection of her Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he begins to take up this issue in chapter 9. And you'll recall that he there in that chapter, says, well, God did make promises in the Old Testament concerning Israel, concerning revival, and her reception of the Messiah to come. But he points out in chapter 9 that those promises only applied to the elect, the chosen within Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. And so he goes into a discussion about election and predestination and Romans chapter 9 is that classic chapter for that doctrine. and As we've seen over the past weeks in chapter 10, Paul there talks about the human side of Israel's rejection of her Messiah. And so in chapter 10, in verses 2 through 4, he says about them, the Jews who rejected Jesus, they have a zeal for God. But not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And he says in their ignorant zeal, they rejected Jesus. Why? They tried to establish their own righteousness, their own good works before God. And so they rejected the righteousness of the Lord Jesus offered to them in the gospel. You know, we all need that alien righteousness to be right with God. Our good works are never sufficient. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And last time we were together, we looked at verses 14 and 15, where Paul talks about this wonderful promise. The promise actually is in verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And and what What good news for us today who are not Jewish people, whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And there again in verse 14 and also in verse 15, he talks about the necessity, the importance of the Word of God in any ministry. We talked about the priority of preaching last time. And so this morning uh, in our text, beginning there at verse 16, he begins to address some questions. Paul was a good teacher, preacher, an apostle, and he knew that there would be questions. He knew his audience well. And uh, the question goes something like this. Um, If verses 14 and 15 are true, that preaching, biblical preaching, leads to hearing, and hearing leads to faith, and faith leads to calling upon the name of the Lord in order to be saved then why haven't the Jews believed in Jesus? That's the question. If verses 14 and 15 are true, and they are, then why did not the Jewish people as a nation, as a whole, receive Jesus when he came unto them? Why is John chapter 1 true where it says he came unto his own, and his own received him not? If what you say, Paul, is the case. And so if you look there in verse 16, he goes back to the issue at hand, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. That takes us all the way back to chapter 9 and verse 6, where he says, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. God's word has not fallen to the ground. God's word is intact. And whatever he has prophesied in times before must and will come to pass. So what's the case then? What is going on, Paul, his readers might ask? And so he quotes there in verse 17, rather verse 16, he quotes from Isaiah 53. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And he quotes Isaiah 53 here pointing forward to indicate to us that Isaiah 53 was a prophecy, because remember Isaiah 53 talks about our Lord Jesus, the suffering servant. And by the way, if you're talking ever to a Jewish person who is an unbeliever in the Lord Jesus, that's a good place to go, because it talks about the Messiah of Israel and the sufferings he would undergo, and then you take them to the Gospels and you show them where this was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. And so, Paul here quotes from Isaiah 53 to show that the rejection of the Messiah on the part of Israel did not take God by surprise. In fact, it's part of the plan. And of course, if we were to go back to chapter 9, we would say it's all part of the plan of what? God's choice, His election, and so forth, His plan of salvation. And so, in our passage then, the Apostle asks two questions that his hearers would raise. And he will list two possible reasons and then give the actual reason in our text concerning their rejection of the Messiah. We could ask, well, did Israel, does Israel get a free pass? May Israel be excused by their behavior of rejecting the gospel of Christ? And Paul will answer that question and others in our text. And we'll see, I hope, at the end that this does have great significance for the world today and even for us here this morning. And so then, what, what is the first possible reason that Paul gives to us uh, as far as Israel rejecting their Messiah? Why would this be? Well, reason number one is uh, he throws this out there. Maybe they didn't know. Maybe they just didn't know the gospel. If you look at verse 18, he says, but I say, have they not heard? Have they not heard? And that's the question. Did they not know the gospel? Have they not heard the word of God? And just as quickly as he raises the question, he answers it. He says, yes, indeed. That is, yes, they have heard the message. And then you'll notice he quotes Psalm 19 and verse 4. Their sound has gone out. To all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now, as you think about that, if you've read Psalm 19, you'll know that Psalm 19 has two divisions basically. The first division, which includes this text, talks about creation, the second part deals with the law and the word of God. And so, if you know, Psalm 19, or if you go back and look at it, you might scratch your head and say, well, Paul, why Why did you quote Psalm 19 and verse 4 to say, yes, they have heard the gospel and the word of God, God's special revelation? What's going on? Well, hold your finger there in Romans 10 and let's look at Psalm 19 and see what is going on. In some ways, Psalm 19 is a preview of Paul's letter to the Romans because in Psalm 19, again, in the first oh, six verses, he deals with God's creation and he shows that God's creation is proof of the living God and therefore uh, no men have any excuse to live in rebellion against the creator, the living and true God. Romans 1 starts that way, right? Well, in Psalm 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Um, When when we open our eyes, when when we exist as humans being, the knowledge of God is inescapable. As Calvin said about His own deity and existence God sheds new droplets daily. You can't go anywhere and escape the knowledge of the living and true God. The heavens declare it, His glory. The firmament shows His handiwork, that there is this creation. If there's a creation, there's what? A creator. And day unto day, verse 2, utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. Verse 3, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So yes, if we go to some distant, remote place in the world where they are still living in tribal form in the jungle, as it is often said, the knowledge of God is there in their midst. By the way, that's why those people have sacrifices and some form of worship. They know there is a God and that they owe Him something. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words are to the end of the world. And so, the Apostle Paul will um, write something similar to this in Romans 1 and say that all men are inexcusable. So we talked about this being a form of God's revealing Himself, a form of His self-revelation. We call it general revelation. It is creation. And there's a problem. When it comes to God's general revelation, the creation, it reveals enough knowledge about the existence of God only to condemn us. You can't go out and look at the beautiful sunset. You can't look through a telescope at the moon. You can't look at a, or through a microscope at whatever, you know, considering your own self, whatever it is, and say, well, there is a God... Um, now, let me look through the telescope and the microscope and find the gospel. Right? General creation or general revelation, the creation only condemns men. It takes special revelation, the Word of God, and in the gospel in particular, to lead us to words of life, the way to forgiveness, the message about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so why does Paul refer to verse 4 of Psalm 19? See it? Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. It's talking about the heavens and the firmament, their declaration, their sermon, if you will, their proclamation. What's Paul doing? Well, some have said, such as Charles Hodge That Paul simply, in Romans 10, is borrowing the language of Psalm 19 and verse 4 without intending to say what Psalm 19 says. He's just using biblical language. And uh, I, with others, disagree with that. And one reason is because if you go back and look at Romans 10, he, he refers to this verse verbatim exactly as it is. And it really doesn't answer the question that he poses. Have they not heard that is the gospel? And uh, you can't look to the creation and find the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we need revelation given to us by God in his word and gospel preachers, Romans 10, 14, and 15. But if you look at Psalm 19 here, I'll point out some things to you and and give you what I believe he is doing. In verses 1 through 6 again it's about the revelatory nature of creation. In verses 7 through 8 however it's about God's word, the characteristics or the attributes of scripture. Verse 7 the law of the Lord is perfect. Verse 8 the statutes of the Lord are right. The commandments of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous. And so it's talking about God's law, His revealed will, and His holy word. If you look at verse 2 about the general creation or general revelation, it is continual. Day unto day utters speech, night unto night reveals knowledge. You know, this declaration never ceases. We may go to sleep but creation continues to declare God's glorious existence. It's continual, and also it is universal. In verses 3 and 4, it says, there is no speech nor language where they are not heard. And then in verse 4, the line has gone out through all the earth, and there are words to the end of the world. And so when you think about that, Paul could be borrowing the language of Psalm 19 and verse 4 to communicate his own yet Holy Spirit-inspired idea, as an apostle, that just as creation testifies to all men of God's existence, so too should the gospel be preached to every creature under the sun, that the continual and universal declaration of God's existence to all the nations by the creation anticipates, expects the con- continual and universal declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all Nations. I had a seminary professor, Dr. Curto, and uh, he would always tell us in our evangelism class that creation has gone before you. And we should take confidence in that, knowing that when we talk about God's word and the Lord Jesus to another person, that God has been testifying of his existence to them. And there is in Psalm 19 this anticipation of the coming word of God and light and the setting of, with the backdrop of, God's creation. And this has happened. Paul will say elsewhere in the New Testament, in Colossians 1 and verse 6, he says to the Christians there that the gospel, quote, has come to you as it has in all the the world. The gospel has come to you as it has also in all the world. Now, what is Paul referring to there in Colossians 1.6? I take it to mean, as others do, that Paul is saying that the gospel of Christ has gone, gone out to all the known world, including the Jews who were scattered throughout the earth. And when you consider the rest of Scripture, remember we interpret Scripture with what? Scripture The only infallible rule for the interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. When we look at other Scriptures, here's what we find. We find that it is clear that the Jews of the known world in Paul's day heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself preached the gospel throughout Palestine, going to the outskirts thereof and preaching to some Gentiles at times. But when you consider Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, The Jews had come from all the nations. And let me just read to you some of what Acts chapter 2 tells us in verses 5 through 11. It says, There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together, and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia. And he just goes on and on and on. We hear them, he says, speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And it goes on. And so then Peter stands up in light of that and says, This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he ends his sermon there. But you had there at Pentecost Jews from every nation under heaven. And Peter preaches the gospel to them. So all those Jews heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have they heard? Yes or no? Yes. Paul says, indeed, they have. So going back to Romans chapter 10. Have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Indeed. And so we must conclude with the Apostle Paul that the reason for Israel's failure and unbelief cannot be that they have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. So then Paul gives a second reason as to why it possibly could be that they rejected Jesus or they haven't called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says something to this effect. Maybe they've heard, but they didn't understand. If you look at verse 19, but I say, did Israel not know? Did they not understand? And so that's what he gets at there. And so again, he refers to the Old Testament. He refers to Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 21. That's in verse 19 where it says, this is God speaking I will provoke you, Israel, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. So they're not a nation, but then they're a foolish nation. What's he saying? This is in the context of Deuteronomy 32, the song of Moses. God has been patiently putting up with his rebellious people, Israel, And finally, he says through the one speaking as a prophet there that he will provoke them, that he will move them. That is to jealousy, to anger by whom? Not the Jewish people, not themselves, but by the Gentiles. When you look in the Old Testament, you see the word nations. Think Gentile. The ethnos is the the New Testament word there. And the Old Testament equivalent is often translated as nations, the peoples. And so he, God himself, we were told, would provoke Israel to jealousy and anger by means of the Gentiles. Those who are not a nation, that is not a nation like you, Israel, who are a foolish nation. That is a nation without understanding. Why are they without understanding? Because they have not received God's special revelation, the word of God, at that time. So in other words, God is going to do it through the Gentiles. He's going to provoke Israel to jealousy. And so if, if you understand here what Paul is saying, you will know that because the Gentiles would be included into the nation of God, the kingdom of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church of the living God. Because the Gentiles would come into it, this would make Israel jealous and envious of the Gentiles. Now God, um, Paul is going to come back to this in Romans eleven and verse eleven. But why does Paul point to this truth in the Old Testament? Why does Paul point to the fact that in the days of Christ and in the days of himself, Paul, that the Jews became envious, that they became mad at and jealous of the Gentiles? Because if Paul can prove this, he will show that the Israelites did know. The Israelites did understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's already shown they've heard question now is, do they understand? And so, if he can show that the Jews became jealous of the Gentile inclusion in the church of God, their jealousy indicates that they understand God's message. Well, how does this work? Let me put it in the form of a question. If the Jews did not understand the gospel of God's free grace through Jesus Christ, then why did they get so angry and jealous when it was preached to the Gentiles? You see, the gospel was proclaimed to the Gentiles, and it was because they simply repented and put their faith in Jesus that they entered the kingdom of God. So the Gentiles were not required by God to become Jews first. That is, they were not required to undergo circumcision and obedience of the law of Moses. Remember Acts 15? That's the disruption there. The Jews, the unbelieving Jews even, they, they thought, well, if they're going to become a part of us, the Gentiles, they have to become Jews first, and that's not part of God's plan. And think about this. What heresy was it that the Jews kept bringing into the early church? The Judaizers, even those who would confess Jesus, what was the heresy? Well, it was you needed you needed Jesus, yes, but you also needed what circumcision. Yeah, you get a little grace, but you also have to have works, works of the law. And here is their problem: if the Gentiles can and may come into God's kingdom without the law, simply and only by faith alone in Christ alone, then that means that the Jewish belief of salvation by works is wrong. Therefore, we can say that since the Jews were jealous of the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's kingdom, They, the Jews, certainly understood the message of Jesus and the message that Paul preached. This goes back to their zeal back in chapter 10 and verse 3. They were seeking to establish their own righteousness. They were in a competition with God's righteousness, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because they were jealous, that indicates, therefore, that they understood. Wait a minute, the the Gentiles, they did not have to observe all of these ceremonies, all of these laws, even circumcision, those things that I have to do. How is that fair? And so they understood what God was doing. He was offering the kingdom to the Gentiles by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, as he has always done. This is illustrated for us in many ways in the Gospels and so forth and in John chapter five, they understood clearly Jesus's claim as to who he said he was in John chapter five and verse 18 it says, "Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not, he not only broke the Sabbath but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God there's proof of Jesus' claim to be divine, to be the second person of the Godhead. They considered it blasphemy. Jesus says, no, I'm the eternally begotten Son of God. I'm equal with God the Father. They understood him to say that. They understood what he was saying. In John chapter 8, Jesus was basically saying, look, you think that you're part of God's kingdom because your great-great-great-granddaddy was who? Abraham. Abraham. He said, But if you were true children of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. Abraham had faith in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus to come. They didn't have it. He says, You are of your father, the devil. But in verse 43, he told them this He says, Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. Understanding in that sense, you have to understand, means to hear and obey, to believe it, to have faith. And so Jesus would tell the Jewish nation in Matthew 21, and verse 43, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Jesus prophesied of the fact that the gospel would go to the Gentiles, that Israel had rejected him and therefore God would take the gospel to the Gentiles. And uh, let me just show you and illustrate this, how this happened in space and time. And I'm so thankful for uh, the account we have in the book of Acts. I think Luke wrote that under the inspiration of God's Spirit. Well, Acts chapter 13 is a pivotal chapter. It's where this actually happens, and Paul and Barnabas are preaching there, and uh, just listen carefully. Verse 42, so when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking the truth to them who persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And so while the Jews may not be all excited about the gospel, guess who is getting excited about the gospel? The Gentiles. In verse 44, it says, On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with what? Envy, jealousy, anger, and contradicting... And blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it, that is, you push it away, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we what? Turn to the Gentiles. So down in verse 51, Paul and Barnabas, it says, They shook the dust all from their feet against them, and came to Iconium, just as Jesus told them to do when rejected by men. And so now back in Romans chapter 10, he quotes Moses. He, he talks about the prophecy in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32 there, that um, God would provoke the Israelites to envy, to anger, by means of the Gentiles coming in. And this proves, therefore, that the Jewish people did know that the gospel is the proclamation of God's grace alone. And So next in our text here, he quotes Isaiah 65 and verse 1. That's there in verse 20. He says, but behold... Or rather, he says, but Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. This refers to the Gentiles, but it also refers to God's grace, does it not? Why do I say that? Because it says, he was found by those who did not seek me. I was was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. How can a person find something that they are not seeking? It's kind of like when Jesus tells the man with the withered, the withered hand, he says, stretch forth your arm. How can he do that? Because of the power of God. God gives him the grace and the ability to stretch forth his arm, and he brings healing through that command. The same is true with the gospel. God commands us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. We can't do it in and of ourselves, but by his grace and strength and power through the Spirit, We do it. And so this is a reference not only to the Gentiles coming in there in verse 20, but God's grace. Why? Romans 3 says, No man seeks after God. Romans 3.11 And so then, if it is true that they have heard, if it is true that they did know, That in the gospel, Jesus of Nazareth is proclaimed as the Christ, the Messiah. Why have they rejected him? If you have a good and biblical understanding of the doctrine of man, you know why. Well, Paul lays this out for us there in verse 21. I'll come back to that in a moment, I hope. The true reason for their rejection of Jesus is because they simply were a stubborn people. Verse 21, to Israel he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Disobedient means disobedient and contrary Literally means to speak against, to, as one put it, talk back to God. This was the case of Israel of old for generations as a whole. In Deuteronomy nine thirteen, it says, Furthermore, the Lord spoke to me, saying, I have seen this people, and indeed they are a stiff-necked people. They had times of revival, and then they fell away again. So in Nehemiah 9:26, the Levites lead God's people in a prayer of confession, of sin, and this is what they pray. Nevertheless, talking of their fathers, the Israelite fathers, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn to yourself, and they worked great provocations. Why were the Israelites stubborn? Why did the Israelites reject the Lord Jesus Christ in their stubbornness? It goes back to their pride, spiritual pride. Because in order to receive Jesus Christ, to rest upon him for salvation and the forgiveness of sins, one must first confess his or her sins. And if you have to confess your sins, you cannot say that you have obeyed the law of God perfectly. And yet, in our foolishness as humans, we, we think we have. And so as we think about it, let us not commit this error. You see, they would look down upon the Gentiles, because the Gentiles, they had not received the sign of church membership. The Gentiles didn't have the Ten Commandments. The Gentiles, they called them, were filthy dogs. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he tells them, "You've missed the whole point of the law. The law testifies of me." It testifies of your sinfulness, your need of me. And Jesus gives that parable in Luke chapter 18, I think it is, of the Pharisee and the tax collector who go up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee. Well, first of all, Luke tells us that Jesus told this parable to those who trusted in themselves and despised others. If you want to know whether or not a person, in fact, if you want to know if you have self-righteousness in your heart, do you trust in yourself? You despise others. Then he says, the Pharisee prayed like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, sinners. What a pompous, prideful prayer of thanksgiving. And then there's the the, the, um, tax collector over there in the corner. He wouldn't raise his eyes to heaven. He was so contrite. He was beating his chest over and over again and says, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus says, that man went home justified. Not the Pharisee, the tax collector. Not the Jewish person, the Gentile, or the one considered as a Gentile. He went home justified. And so as we consider what is said here, we see obviously that the Jews of the first century and even the unbelieving Jews of our day have no excuse for their denial of the Lord Jesus Christ and their unbelief in Him. Even though the Scriptures talked about it, they foretold that this would happen, the blame is still on them. They are accountable to God before God for their own actions and their own unbelief. Just as is the case with all men, and yes, us who sin against God. So as we think about what Paul says here, let us learn from the example of the Israelites. We have something in common with the Jewish people. We're made in God's image and we are fallen creatures. Even if we are Christian today, we have remaining sin. And what they were prone to, we too can do as Christians. So let me make three applications in light of what we've seen this morning. First of all, let us take great care to repent of any self-righteousness or related sins we find in our own hearts. There's a little bit of the Pharisee in all of us at times. Especially after we've been in church for a while, You may come from a pagan background and praise God you were converted. God began to clean up your life to give you the power through his word and all of the means of grace to overcome life-dominating sins. You put that behind you. You still sin maybe a little bit here and there, but not like you used to and you are in the church, you're kind of isolated from the world for months, years, perhaps decades, and and you forget what it's like to live in the filth of the world, and how it was held captive, how you were held captive by it, how Satan had you captive, and now you kind of look back and you, you thank God that I'm not like other men. Do we ever do that? Well, the Bible reminds us who we were, the Bible reminds us that God doesn't want us to forget. In Ephesians 2, it says, you who were dead in your sins and trespasses. We don't glory in our past if we lived out in the world and did all of these things. God wants us to remember who we were and what He did every day or every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Christ is reminding us that He delivered us from the house of bondage. And so let us not become self-righteous and look down at family members, co-workers, and neighbors who do not know Christ. Let us look at them as those who are held captive just as were we, even if we just grew up in the church and were self-righteous. That they need to be delivered from the gospel of Christ. That they need salvation. They need to come out of Egypt just as we have by God's saving grace. The Bible says, but of such were some of you. But you were washed, you were justified, and you were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Our water baptism doesn't save us. Church attendance does not save us. No obedience to God's word saves us. Only Christ himself saves us. If there is an obedience that saves us, it's found there in verse 16, but they have not obeyed, all obeyed the gospel. It is our obedience to the gospel. Receiving Christ, trusting in Jesus alone for our sins, fleeing unto him. And then second. Let us examine our own hearts to see if there be any stubbornness in us. Israel was stubborn. They said no to God. They were disobedient. They were contrary. They heard the prophets over and over again. They had the scriptures that had the prophets' words recorded in them. They had Christ to come to them. They had the apostles. They tried to shut down and cancel the the apostles in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5. But Christ will build His church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Remember that in our day and time. And as we think about the error of the Israelites here, let us not resist God's call to obedience to his word. First of all, the obedience to the gospel. I mean, even in Isaiah 55, 55, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. He will abundantly pardon. So you have time now while the Lord may be found and while he is near. If you die today without the Lord Jesus Christ and go to hell forever there will be an inseparable chasm between you and the living God forever. He will not be able to be found at that place. And so that's why the Bible says, Now, today is the day of salvation. How many people hear the gospel over and over and over again? They hear a verse, maybe John three sixteen, over and over again, and they do not respond. Let us take care to respond to the gospel call. And maybe you're a Christian, and you're here this morning, and God has convicted you of a certain sin. And you won't put it away. You put it away for a a while, only so that you can return to it. Let us not say no to God. Let us not be named a disobedient and contrary people. And then, last, let us rejoice and take advantage of the patience of Almighty God. Look there in verse 21. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Even though they were disobedient, even though they back talked the living God, he had his arms outstretched. The picture of a heavenly father, perhaps even kneeling, waiting to embrace his son or daughter who comes fleeing unto him. And he was patient all day long. Isn't that the picture of the father who is the king? And that parable of the prodigal. The prodigal moves away. He takes his inheritance early. He goes away out from under his parents' authority so he can go and do what he wants. He can go live how he wants. And it's all wasteful. It's all unprofitable. It's all filth before God. He comes to his senses And even though he's eating from the same food as the pigs, he remembers if I go home, my Father will feed me. And he goes home and the Father runs to embrace his Son. Beloved, Jesus Christ held out his arms on the cross of Calvary so that we might come home to God. And let us Today, embrace him back. Let us run home just as did that prodigal son. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for not only the gospel blessings and promises in your word, but also the warnings. Let us take heed to them, we pray, for your own glory. In the name of Christ, amen.